today's message I titled The Ministry because uh, as we close out chapter 9 here in the book of Matthew, if you're new to Mill City, we teach expositionally here. What that means is the Lord leads us to a book of the Bible and then we teach it literally verse by verse. And so we've been in chapter 9 here since uh, mid-September and we'll finish up today and uh, Eric, thank you if you're in here. Thank you. What, what a great message last night or last Sunday. <laughs> and, and on occasion, and our preaching team, I told them when we met a, a couple of, uh, a few weeks ago, listen, I trust you and I trust that you're in the word. I trust that you're connected to the Lord. And if he gives you another message for this body, then praise God. And uh, so sometimes uh, if the preaching team uh, is up here, they continue where we left off, just like uh, throughout the summer. Uh, other times it'll be like tomorrow or like last week where uh, the Lord gave Eric a word and it was a good word. And uh, it was a, a life-changing uh, uh, opportunity. So, But we pick up where we left off a, a couple of weeks ago, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, God, we have worshiped you this morning. You are worthy of all praise and honor. And so God, as we have opened our hearts to you, would you open our hearts to your word this morning that it would find the perfect place in every heart, take root and produce fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have here is a, is a model, and there are various times throughout the Gospels uh, where there's a, um, there are models that Jesus gives us as we break down the Scripture. Uh, this is one of those uh, few that we've seen in the last several weeks that is exclusive to Matthew. It's a very popular verse. If you've been in church uh, for, for any lengthy period of time, certainly you've heard at least this last verse. Um, about the harvest, and it's interesting that it is as, as popular as it is, and yet to only be found in uh, one of the four Gospels. But we have four, or I'm sorry, three different pieces of this model, or, or um, themes, if you, you could call it. We'll see the mission, we'll see the motivation, and then we'll see the method for the ministry. So first, the mission. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So this is kind of a summary statement of, of multiple episodes. So as, this, as Mark is wrapping up this, or as Matthew is wrapping up this section of his gospel, he just catches all of multiple episodes and lumps them into this general statement. But we see here in this opening verse the mission that Jesus is on. And the first thing we see in the mission is 
Who? Who? So notice he went through all the towns and villages. Jesus did not discriminate. His message was for everyone. And that's the gospel. Romans chapter 10 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith. And scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. It's the same Lord who is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This message is for everyone. This message is for everyone. Jesus was on a mission. It's a great model for us because we need to be on mission and we need to realize as a church, there's not one person can walk into this building can walk into this room and not be able to receive Christ. Everyone, anyone can be saved. Now you might say, yeah, but what about that verse in Matthew chapter 15? Jeff, I knew that was on your mind here. And so let's look at it. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now in several weeks, when Jake Shovel is a grandfather. We'll probably get to chapter 15. <laughs> and so we'll look at it. We'll look at it in detail. But this is the story where the woman comes to Jesus and he's teaching and she says, my daughter is, is uh, in need. And he says, I've only been sent to these people. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And you're like, whoa, that's kind of that's kind of harsh. And um, he says, great is your faith. You can also see uh, in the book of John, um, Jesus meeting with a, a, the woman at the well. Um, Jesus had to go through Samaria, it says at one point. So Jesus was constantly on mission and anyone and everyone he came in contact with deserved to hear the message. That's one of the reasons that we do kids' ministry at all levels. We don't babysit back there. Even at the, the youngest of age, we are instilling them in them God's word because they deserve to hear the gospel at a level that they can understand. I say often, I, this is PG-13 in here. I don't teach to kids. They can't understand it, but they can understand. I heard that there were 18 kids last week in Mill City Kids that gave the hearts to the Lord. That's amazing. Paul speaks to this same concept, though, in Ephesians chapter 3, the mystery that is through the gospel is... Um, this mystery, pardon me, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They're members of one body, even though they're coming from two different places, two different families. They come together at the cross, in other words. There are sharers, he says, together in the promise. Well, next we see where 
Jesus is on mission. Look at it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues. Now I realize that I'm a pastor of a local church, and so please consider that as I make this point, but it still says it. What? He was teaching in their synagogues. Now in this particular time, the synagogue was not like this. I don't think they had a video wall. I don't think they had this going on. I don't think they had a drum set. They probably had an organ, and they probably had choir robes, but... Here's what they did. It was a place. It was a place where people congregated. It was a place where people congregated to open God's word and worship him. And that's what we do. We have a place where we congregate and we open God's word and we worship him. That's, what, that's really all it is. Now, we know that Jesus taught outside, too. We know that he taught in homes. In fact, we saw, as we opened up this chapter, um, the very first passage, it was Jesus teaching in a home, and they cut the ceiling off, of uh, the, to cut the roof off to put the man in, because there were so many people, they couldn't get the, the paralytic in. And then uh, just this last passage, we saw the two blind men. But, but look at this, verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, it says, the blind men came. Now, that could have gone in a house. In my initial thought, I'm like, well, they, they went into a house. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say synagogue either. We don't know. Um, but I will say this, as uh, through the, the last... Well, throughout our ministry, we often will have people that will come to us. They are typically unhappy with some decision that has been made. And they will say something like this. Well, you know, the New Testament church just met in homes. Or they would come up with this one. Well, you know, in China and in Africa and some communist country, they don't have churches like this. And that's true. Um, but I do want to give you some, some thoughts. Um, in fact, we had a, a pastor, very prominent pastor in California that, uh, visited overseas and was struck by the home churches over, I believe it was China. I don't know for sure, but he left his church and started a home group ministry. Uh, that's a hundred percent of what I know about that, by the way. Um, and I'm not trying to say he didn't hear from God. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying this. First, the New Testament church did not only meet in homes. In fact, the very first church you can find in Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 44, all the believers were together. This is on the heels of, of what? Um, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, so we're talking about thousands of people by this happening. They were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions, gave to anyone in need. Look at this. Every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together. So the truth is this. The early church 
did both. They met together in the temple, and they met in homes. Second, we don't live in China. I know, I know. We don't live in Africa. We don't live yet in a communist country. Yet. Where Christianity is outlawed. It, it may get that way. That train is headed in that direction. But we're not there yet. And our society still has church on Sundays. People still gather at church, a local church, building body, organization. That's still a thing. And, and so while I'm not going to give my unsolicited counsel to someone who doesn't ask for it, um, and I'm certainly not going to tell you what God's called you to do, I will tell you this, God has called me to pastor this church. And I'm privileged to be a pastor of this church. I love what I do. I love almost every minute of my job. So let me just wrap it up by saying this. Jesus went where people were. And he went where there was a lot of people. Why? Because he wanted as many people as possible to hear his word. That leads to another question. What was he doing? Well, he was teaching. He was a teacher. In Matthew chapter 7, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So now we have the, the what of the mission. He went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus taught about what? The kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4, we have this episode where Jesus, once again, goes into the synagogue. Look at it. It was, it was his custom to do that. He went to church. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Wouldn't that have been a cool sight to see? Talk about authority. Everybody's looking at him. And he says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what did he just do? He went where people were. He opened God's word. He read it. And then he explained it. That's really the simplicity of churches. I believe that's one of the, the aces that the Lord dealt us was we would be an expository church. 
We will open God's word. We will let the topics be what he has determined in his authority and his divine will. The Bible is written very well. We need not rewrite it. And so you're never going to find a topical sermon here, series, hey, we're going to talk about love. Hey, we're going to talk about this. Hey, we're going to talk about that. No, we're going to talk about whatever God has written in his word. He leads us to a Bible. I think this is the seven book we have taught through in our eight, uh, eight years, seven years. And about two months or so before we wrap up this, I believe the Lord will bring another book to my spirit, and that's where we'll go next. And he's very trustworthy. So that's the plan of the church. What was the message? Well, Mark summarizes it in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What's the gospel? Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at this. It is with your heart that you believe And it says, and are justified. What does that mean? Well, the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty for our sin. And so justice must be paid. And as in our belief, our faith, our choice to believe pays that price. Justice, in other words, has been served. Praise God. Now, how do we know that you really believe it? Well, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. And it begins with a declaration. I could lead in song. I could be a worship leader up here. (laughs) That's the concept. So so immediately actions follow. Then you're baptized. And, And your life begins to change. Why? Because there's been an inside change. It is by grace, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that you're saved. Through faith. It's not something that you do. It's something that's already been done. You accept that, and God says, that's it. I love how he writes in 2 Corinthians 5 about this gospel. He, he, He gives a He comes at it from another direction. He says, anyone who is in Christ, when Paul says in Christ or Christ is in them, that's his favorite description for salvation. So you're saved. Paul would say, well, Christ is in you. Uh, You are in Christ, in other words. So for anybody that's saved, anyone who's in Christ, guess what? You're a new creation. Praise the Lord. The old you is gone. It has been replaced with the new you, Mike. I've seen you raise your hands in worship. That's amazing. Pam, can you believe he actually raises his hand in worship now? It's awesome. Life's changed. The old him is gone. The new him is here. And guess what? It's all from God. It's not anything he's done. It's something that's already been done. He's just chosen to accept it as truth. I'm gonna, and I'm going to walk this thing out. I'm going I'm to start behaving like a Christian. 
Because faith is from God. It's not from you. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. This is from God, he says. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Let me, let, let me explain this to you. So uh, who, who's an old timer has, still has a checkbook? Look at all these. Oh, it's first service. <laughs> and every month you get a bank statement. Anybody still on paper statements? A little less, fewer, okay? And what are you supposed to do? You get your bank statement, then you go to your check register. Who fills out a check register? Even fewer. Yeah, there's like a token few, <laughs> right? You, you, and what are, you, what are your assignments? Your assignment is to look at the bank statement balance, which is always right. I work at a bank. It's always right. And you look at your check register, which is where the error is going to be. And most of the time, it's an error because... You have written checks that aren't on the bank statement because this is a few, few days old. And, and so what are you supposed to do? The vocabulary word is reconcile. There's a gap. Well, the wages of sin is death. Before salvation, you're not a bad person. You're a dead person. You ever see a dead person do something? Nope. They're dead. Shocker. They can't clothe themselves. They can't get in the casket. They can't get to the church on time. They can't get into the... They're done. They're done. So before Christ, we are all dead, spiritually. And the only thing that brings us back to life is the reconciliation that gap is what that is. It's a gap between your imperfect life and God's perfect standard. There's the gap. And what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Your imperfection, his perfection, that gap is closed through Christ. That's amazing. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't work for it. It's a gift. And then look what it says. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He thought enough of your imperfection to sign you up on his team. What is that? God is reconciling the world. Here it is. Everyone, anyone can get in. The whole world is eligible to be reconciled, which means what? Your sin is not going to be counted against you. My sin, I'm saved. My sin, all of my sin, past, present, future will not be held against me. That's good news. And then he's committed that message to me and to you and to you and to you and to you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has committed this message to you. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God 
is telling his story, Jeff, to your world through your life. How do I say that? Well, how would you say that? That's a you thing. You're you. You're not me. I'm not you. But that doesn't change your responsibility. You still have a responsibility. Because the other side of it is when you don't look like Christ, then that has a, another impact, doesn't it? It's a great responsibility. And you will fall, we all fall short. So what do you do? When you, when you make an error, you humble yourself, and you ask for forgiveness, and you move on. And you trust the Lord's going to help you better the next time. That's the mission. What's the motivation? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Isaiah chapter 30 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you and he rises to show you compassion. Isn't that a beautiful word picture? The shortest the shortest verse in the entire Bible is what? Somebody yell it out to me. Isn't, even us, even us that can't memorize anything anymore, we can memorize that one. Why is that cool? Because it shows us his compassion. See, this is in the midst of, of Lazarus' funeral. And he knows what he's going to do. He's going to raise him from the, from the dead. But yet... He takes a moment with the family and he allows his heart to be moved with compassion. I think it's, there's a really great reason why it's the shortest verse that we can all memorize. Because we need to understand Jesus was compassionate. Here in chapter 9, this is a generalization statement, as I said before, of, of Jesus' ministry. But also his motivation. Because when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Let me ask you something. Do you see the crowds? I haven't been to an NFL game since uh, we started the church, mainly because I don't have time to. Um, but I'll never forget one of the last ones I went to. It was a Vikings-Buccaneers game in December of 2013. And um, I was in the middle of my ministerial classes, and, and as I walked throughout that stadium, the old Humphrey Dome, Metrodome, um, it was as if the Lord gave me eyes, because there's tens of thousands of people, and I just, my heart was moved. Who knows the Lord here? Who's going to eternity in heaven? I couldn't tell you anything about that game. I can't tell you who the quarterbacks were, who the running backs were. I can't tell you who the coaches were. I can't tell you who won that game. But I can tell you this. I saw the crowds. And it changed me. I've shared this before. It's just too important not to share. Back in 2019, Barna Group... It was a Christian research company. They did a study called post-Christian cities or post-Christian culture. And I don't know if I've ever put up the criteria. There were 16 
criteria that they used in this survey. That, so the, the question, you don't believe in God. You identify as an atheist or an agnostic. You disagree that faith is important in your life. You've not prayed to God in the last week. You've never made a commitment to Jesus. You disagree that the Bible is accurate. You've not donated money to a church in the last year, attended church in the last six months. You believe Jesus committed sins. You don't feel a responsibility to share your faith. You haven't read the Bible in the last week. You haven't volunteered at church in the last week. You haven't attended a Sunday school class in the last week that's old school. You haven't attended a life group in the last week. Bible engagement scale is low. Um, yeah, thanks, Mike, for putting the, the parenthetical phrases in here. Um, that means you haven't read the Bible in the last week and disagree strongly or somewhat that the Bible is even accurate. And you're not born again. So they identify a post-Christian as an individual who meets nine of those 16 criteria, nine of them. Highly post-Christian would be 13 of 16. And then they gave the top 100 cities in the United States. Now go to the next slide and you'll see where we are. You see Madison is number 11 and Green Bay Appleton is number 52 above Milwaukee. Now, I first saw that, I was shocked by that. Because we live in a pretty conservative culture here, don't we? We're, I mean, it's very red when it comes to voting day. We may be a conservative culture. I would just submit to you, we're not a Christian culture. Those are two totally different things. So what's the big idea here? Jesus saw the crowds, and he still sees the crowds because the crowds are still there. I was reminded of this data that I found back in the spring. Uh, this is our market. When the Lord looks at Mill City and when, he's ra when he raised up Mill City Church, these are the crowds that he saw between Appleton and Oshkosh Metro. There are 415,707 people. That's a crowd. Based on what Barna study from 2019, okay, so that's five years old, post-COVID now, I would submit to you that 43% probably higher today. But let's just assume it's 43%. That means 178,754 people in our market are post-Christian. Let that sink in. And then hear this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. He wasn't mad. He wasn't disappointed in them. He wasn't angry or frustrated or upset. No, it says he had 
compassion on them. It says they were harassed and helpless. What does harassed mean? Subject to, just, some, just off the dictionary, aggressive pressure or intimidation, repeated small-scale attacks, too many demands made on them, some synonyms, stressed, strained, frayed, harried, worn out, hard-pressed, worried, under pressure, at the end of their rope, they're back against the wall. Are people harassed today? You better believe it. How about helpless? Unable to defend themselves or to even act without help. Dependent, incapable, powerless, weak, feeble, defenseless, unprotected, vulnerable, exposed, easily hurt, open to attack, easily destroyed. People are helpless today as well. Like sheep without a shepherd, it says. So they're walking around trying to figure it out, trying to find the answers, trying to find truth, but nobody's leading them, nobody's guiding them, nobody's helping them. And so they're just walking around like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sadly, many people put themselves in a position like this. What? Well, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. And I realize poor leadership plays a part in this. Um, I've been under poor leadership many times in my life, and so have you. Church, sc- um, school, work. Fortunately, I was uh, raised by a dynamic leader and a wonderful father. It's funny how um, the older I get, the more wise my father was. And my son, unfortunately, was raised by a dynamic, (laughs) a good, good father. Just kidding. Poor leadership today feels like the rule rather than the the exception to the rule, doesn't it? But it isn't new. Throughout their history, the Israelites were pastored by Pharaoh, by Nebuchadnezzar. In this particular case, they're being pastored by Caesar and and, uh, Pilate and Herod and those wonderful pastors, teachers of the law and Pharisees. So this isn't new. The problem is 
we can put ourselves in situations like this because we don't allow ourselves to be shepherded sometimes. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 13. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Even in Jeremiah, and we won't go to that one. Uh, I did skip over that. Jeremiah when, when in 29 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to um, prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future, unless you think that that's a time when they're all serving the Lord. No, they are in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Why? Because they chose not to obey. And God ultimately had to discipline them. Back to Romans 13, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Rulers Hold no terror for those who do what's right. Isn't that that an interesting statement? But for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Do do what you're supposed to do. (laughs) Duh! Yeah, but I don't think they're right. Yeah, but I would do it differently. Yeah, you know, welcome to the United States. The one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do what's wrong, then you might as well fear him. So, verse 6, that's why you pay taxes. Isn't it funny how the Bible is timeless? The authorities are God's servants. They give their full time to governing. Give to everyone What you owe them, if you owe taxes, pay taxes, revenue, revenue, respect, respect, honor, honor. That's, and this is written to the Romans. So it's not like they were under godly leadership at the time. To wrap this up, the the motivation here, I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, Scoffers are going to come. They'll scoff. They'll follow their own evil desires. They'll say, when is the Lord coming? Like he said, ah, he's never going to come. Ever since, they've been saying this the whole time, it's never going to happen. And then look at verse 5. They deliberately forget. They deliberately forget that long ago, By God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. These waters are also the same that were used to destroy the world. By that same word, these present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God formed the world. He reset the world. And he's going to do it again. Why do I say they deliberately forgot? That's a choice. I, 
I read this this week. The, the governor of Arkansas had a, a, um, an, exe- an executive order that employees of the government had to use, among other words, the term, the words, breastfeeding. You, know, you want to know why? Because that's what it is. All the moms in the room are like, yeah. But we live in a society today where there's a group of people that are saying, hey, I'm a man, but I'm really a woman. And I ought to be able to do that. Hey, where are my breasts? How come I can't do that? Well, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And so we're just going to change the, the, the reality of life. That's hogwash. That's stupid. But it's right out of the Bible. They deliberately refuse truth. How about that? Verse 8, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. He's not talking about creation here. Remember, the context is destruction and judgment. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Back to that initial mission, everyone, anyone, God's heart, his motivation is that everyone would come to a place of repentance and acknowledgement of who he is. That's why he's waiting. Aren't you glad he's patient? Those of you who have come to the Lord as an adult, aren't you so glad he's patient? I'm glad he's patient. And then he takes this shift, and this will shift us into the the final piece here. Verse 11. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 10. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements, the, in other words, the world, the earth, will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. September 11th times a magnitude that you and I can't even comprehend. The entire world destroyed. If that doesn't motivate you to share the love of Jesus, and that's not the message, that's not the message to share. Jesus, (laughs) the world's coming to an end. Don't you want Jesus? That'll save some people. Woo! So sign me up for that. No, the good news is this. You're not going to be here. You're going to be, look at it. You're going to be in heaven. So he says this, verse 11, he shifts. And the worship team can come. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what type of people ought you to be? Knowing all of this, with this in mind, this isn't the message, 
This is the truth. So knowing this, how are you supposed to behave? What are you supposed to do with this knowledge? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. The more we tell about Jesus, the more we share the gospel, the more the gospel goes throughout this world, the sooner he comes to get us. And that day is going to be destruction. But keep this promise. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where all of these problems that I've just outlined and so many more are not even going to be there. It says righteousness dwells. That's good news too. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you're going to spend eternity in a place where righteousness dwells. That's awesome. So in light of all that and the motivation, let's look at the method. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our responsibility. You're still fogging a mirror. You got a job. It's to share this ministry of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself. He's not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors everywhere we go. Now, we're in the midst of harvest time here in the local community. I have a number of farmers that I work with at the bank. It's not a good time to schedule meetings with them right now. In a few weeks, it will be. Why? Because it's harvest time. They're working. Harvest takes time and effort. One of the greatest benefits, I believe, of being a bivocational pastor, if you're new, I have a job in the real world. I don't just sit around and read my Bible all day. Um, is that I, I can't do everything here. And I'm not supposed to. I have a job. And I love my job. And my job, I take very seriously. I spend a lot of time at my job. I'm talking about my job here at the church. I spend a lot of time and effort doing my job. But if I was doing your job, I wouldn't have time. I'd be spent. I wouldn't have the drive to do what God has called me to do. And so the question then becomes, what has God called you to do? Are you doing it? What has God called you to do to be a part of his ministry? If you're I'm talking to people that are, that are members, that, are, that this is your church, whether you're a member or not, that's irrelevant. This is your church. Where do you go to church? I go to Mill City. That's who I'm talking to. What do you do? What, what, is your, what is your role? How are you serving the Lord by serving his church? 
Do you know what God's ultimately called you to do? Because it's highly probable that you're not called to do that yet, but you're called to do something now. Are you doing that? God called me into pastoral ministry in the year 2011. He spoke to my wife first. I had no idea I was going to be the pastor. I thought it was going to be my friend. I was hurt and angry. And so we decided that the Lord was calling us to start a church right then because we were hurt and angry. Those are not ingredients to starting a church. We tried it. It did not work. It was, it was a valuable use of our time experience uh, in our walk with the Lord, but it was not what God, God had called me to do. But what he called me to do, then when I realized about a year and a half later what he was actually calling me to do, that Sandy knew all along, was pastor this church, which we didn't even open the doors until almost three years later. So if I'd have said, okay, God's going to call me, God's called me to pastor. And I'm just going to wait until he reveals that. And then I'm going to do my job at the bank. I'm going to do my deal. And then on, on September 12th of 2015, I'm going to lay my head down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep so that when I awake, I can go pastor the church. I'm just going to show up and people are just going to come. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Yeah, it is ridiculous. Because that's not how it happened. It took a lot of time and effort and this little job and this little job and this little job and God helped me here and I learned this here and then I learned that there and, and boy, I never would have learned that if I hadn't have done that. But man, if I was just sitting there waiting for God to put me in as a starting quarterback of the Packers or whatever, I, I, he's, they're never going to call me. And so we have to be doing something while we're, because God's using that to prepare us for his call. Do we have that QR code? If you're not serving somewhere in this church and this is your church, I would just like for you to click that and and prayerfully consider, God, where are you calling me to be a part of this church? Because the harvest is plentiful. We got nearly 200,000 people in our little market from Oshkosh to, to Kakana that desperately need Jesus. And it takes all hands on deck. I was in, I was in Barna uh, preparing for this, and I found this is just from last year. America's pastors on their future in full-time ministry. In the year 2021, January, 29% of pastors in the United States gave real serious consideration to quitting. And by October, 10 months later, that had grown to 38%. Nearly 40% of America's pastors were saying, I can't do this anymore. That's shocking. In a time when post-Christian culture is increasing, we have ministers decreasing, 
listen, why does that happen? Mainly because they feel like they're on their own. I've seen, you know, pastors mowing the lawn at the church. We had a guy leave the church. This is some time ago. We had a guy leave the church, and one of his biggest beefs was I took a vacation on a Sunday. Really? Yeah, well, that's his job. You should be pastor. I blessed him at another church to another pastor. That's ridiculous. We're all in the ministry here. We all have a role to play. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words. The workers are few. Find a, One of the cool things about a church is there's lots of things that can be done. And so my prayer today is that the Lord would move on this body, especially as we walk into a new year and a new season of ministry. Um, you know, God's moving on our hearts of what we're going to be putting back on the calendar um, after taking this year off. And, and, you know, there's a season to Sabbath that's coming up in the next chapter, I believe. But there's also a season to harvest. And so, hey, the harvest is plentiful. This message is about where are we as a body grabbing hold of the oars and making it happen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, for your plan. God, I thank you for your gospel, for the good news. I thank you that you paid the price. You gave that gap. You reconciled my life to the Father. And God, I accept the responsibility that you have given to me to be a worker in your harvest field. And I thank you for the leaders that have gone before us that have done some heavy lifting in this community and and we honor them and celebrate their ministries that have gone before us and, and I recognize so many of the results that we have seen, the fruit we've seen in this church has been because of the laborers that have gone before us at so many amazing churches in town. But God, may we not rest on someone else's labor, but we have a responsibility to go before the next generation as well. Until this ground and plant seed Get those rocks out and get those weeds out. And, and, and so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that those that are part of this church would recognize your call, your model for ministry as a mission. We're on mission. There's not one person that's outside of the realm of the grace of God. Everyone we come in contact with can be saved. To recognize the, the eternal implications and let that motivate us to do what you've called us to do. And Father, I pray that you would make it clear 
What, what are you calling everyone in this room to do? What's your call? And then empower us, help us, Lord, to accomplish. In Jesus' name.